Good afternoon, everyone. Great to be with you again. Had a nice little summer vacation, but I always miss Covenant Church. So our sermon text for today is from the book of Esther, chapter 9. So please turn there, and we'll be reading from verse 20 to the end of the chapter. So would you please stand for the reading of God's word. This is God's holy, inerrant word. Please give ear to it. And Mordecai recorded these things and sent letters to all the Jews who were in all the provinces of King Ahasuerus, both near and far, obliging them to keep the 14th day of the day of Adar, and also the 15th day of the same year by year. As the days on which the Jews got relief from their enemies, and as the month that had been turned for them from sorrow into gladness, and from mourning into a holiday. And they should make them days of feasting and gladness, days for sending gifts of food to one another and gifts to the poor. So the Jews accepted what they had started to do and what Mordecai had written to them. For Haman the Agagite, the son of Hamadatha, the enemy of the Jews, had plotted against the Jews to destroy them and had cast poor, that is, cast lots, to crush and to destroy them. But when it came before the king, he gave orders in writing that his evil plan that he had devised against the Jews should return on his own head and that he and his son should be hanged on the gallows. Therefore, they called these days Purim, after the term Pur. Therefore, because of all that was written in this letter, and of what they had faced in this matter, and of what had happened to them, the Jews firmly obligated themselves and their offspring and all who joined them, that without fail they would keep these two days according to what was written and at the time appointed every year, that these days should be remembered and kept throughout every generation in every clan, province, and city, and that these days of Purim should never fall into disuse among the Jews, nor should the commemoration of these days cease among their descendants. Then Queen Esther, the daughter of Abihail, and Mordecai the Jew gave full written authority, confirming this second letter about Purim. Letters were sent to all the Jews, to the 127 provinces of the kingdom of Ahasuerus, in words of peace and truth, that these days of Purim should be observed at their appointed seasons, as Mordecai the Jew and Queen Esther obligated them, and as they had obligated themselves and their offspring, with regard to their fasts and their lamenting. The command of Queen Esther confirmed these practices of Purim, and it was recorded in writing. Thus ends the reading of God's word. Would you please join me in prayer? Your Father, Lord, we thank you once again for your word. And we want to 
recognize that we are engaged in spiritual battle, even now. And Lord, just this week we heard again and other famous people rejecting the faith. And Lord, we know that many people also twist the word of God, teach falsehoods. Father, we know that apart from your Holy Spirit, that we would do the same. So we pray now that by your Spirit, you would enable us to understand, to believe, and to obey afresh your word today. We thank you and pray in Christ's name. Amen. Have a seat. So let me begin by asking you a question. Do you have anything to celebrate today? Any reason to party? It's important to have something to celebrate, isn't it? But not everything is equally important to celebrate. And people have different opinions about what's important to celebrate, don't they? Now, for example, sports fans. Now we have some sports fans here. Sports fans love to celebrate when their favorite team wins. It's especially meaningful when your team comes from behind the last moment to win, isn't it? In the final moments, that's very exciting. But not everybody's equally excited about the game. Now, when I watch the Green Bay Packers, that's our home, home team up there in Wisconsin, when I go home, I watch the Packers games with my parents. And believe it or not, my mother is the biggest Packers fan. So when we watch the game, she's the one who's celebrating. She's the one who's screaming when they make a touchdown or anything, good or bad happens, she is freaking out. Whereas my father and I, we care, but not as much, not nearly as much. We're more relaxed about our fanship. So the way that we celebrate things and the extent that we celebrate, what we celebrate reveals our hearts, doesn't it? Now, in today's text, celebration, celebration is the key theme. This is not the first time we've seen celebration talked about in the book. Anybody remember where we've seen celebration in this book of Esther previously? How does the book begin? It begins with a big old party with the king, Ahasuerus. Six-month-long party. Big old drinking bouts, festival. And then in chapter 3, there was another party. And that was also a drinking party. And that was when, what's his name? Haman. Haman makes his plan with the king to destroy the Jews. And he celebrates. They both celebrate destruction of their enemies or what they thought would be the destruction of their enemies, but didn't actually turn out that way, did it? So here we see that the Jews are to have their own celebration as well. It's not just the wicked that are to celebrate. In fact, the righteous are to celebrate 
and to have an even better celebration. We know that the world celebrates many things as well. We look around, we see, for example, gay pride parades. They're celebrating, aren't they? They're celebrating something. They're celebrating their own sin. They don't want to be ashamed of it. They want to tell the world and celebrate it. They want people to affirm their sin. And that's true. Actually, that's, that's true of not just of homosexuals, but every sin. We want people to embrace it. And if we're not going to repent of it, you and I do the same thing. We want people to say our sin's okay in our natural, natural heart. But here, they're called to celebrate something else. Celebrate something good. Celebrate their deliverance. So that's what we're called to do. You know, Christians are often thought of by, by unbelievers as being party poopers. Like, we don't like to have fun. But indeed, the church is supposed to be a people who celebrate. Celebrate the right things. So here in Esther, the Old Testament church is called to celebrate their deliverance from Haman. Wicked Haman who had tried to destroy them. He tried to completely blot out the Jews from existence. But he had failed. And so we know that we are forgetful. People are forgetful, aren't we? So we need things to keep, this, keep the deliverance on our mind, keep us remembering about what has happened. And so they instituted this festival of Purim. Now, as Christians, what do you think? Are we to celebrate this very same festival? Should we celebrate these Jewish festivals? I don't think so. But, but we still see that we are called to celebrate something else. In fact, this festival of Purim, it points to a greater deliverance, of course. And that is the death and resurrection of Christ that delivered us from sin and death. So we too need to celebrate, have a festival of sorts. This is the thing we want to see in today's text. The church is to be defined by celebration. And we're going to see this in three Three ways in our text today. First of all, feast. Verse 20 to 22 talks about the feast. And secondly, we celebrate to remember. And thirdly, their celebration is also an act of obedience. So feast, remembering, and obedience. First of all, we celebrate because it's an opportunity to feast. So look again at verse 20. Let's read it again. It says, And Mordecai recorded these things and sent letters to all the Jews who were in all the provinces of King Ahasuerus, both near and far, obliging them to keep the 14th day of the month, Adar, and the 15th day of the same year by year, as the days of which the Jews got relief from their enemies, and as the month that had been turned for them from sorrow into gladness, and from mourning into a holiday, that they should make them days of feasting and gladness, days 
for sending gifts of food to one another and gifts to the poor. So we have here a feast. And the theme of the feast is to turn from sorrow into gladness. That's what happened. They were sad before. Why? Death, a death sentence was upon them. They thought they were going to be destroyed, blotted out. And at the last moment, all of a sudden, surprise, they're saved. And that brings joy. That brings joy. And that should bring joy in our hearts too because we've been saved from death. We've been saved from death by Christ. And think about Jesus. If we were to look at him on the cross, look like he was going to lose, didn't it? Look like he was going to be dead and that was it. But no, resurrection happened. He's raised. And so our sadness, our sorrow is turned into gladness. You see, it wasn't just Christ's death and, resur- death and resurrection, but it was all of ours who believe in him. It's our death and our resurrection as well. And so our sorrow is turned to gladness. We've been delivered from our enemies. We've been delivered from Satan who wanted to destroy us. We've been delivered from sin. We've been delivered from death and hell. And so, as Don read for us from John chapter 16, Jesus, Jesus said, Truly, truly, I say to you, you will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn into joy. When a woman is giving birth, she has sorrow because her hour has come. But when she has delivered the baby, she no longer remembers the anguish. For joy that a human being has been born into the world, so also you have sorrow now. But I will see you again. And your hearts will rejoice. No one will take your joy from you. Isn't that a wonderful promise from Jesus? No one will take your joy from you. Not even yourself. It's promised that you will have ultimately have joy that can, cannot be broken, cannot end, cannot be stolen. Praise God. Now further, this feast in Esther wasn't just about people having joy and keeping it to themselves. But this joy was to be spread. It was to be gifted. See, part of the festival was giving gifts. Giving gifts. And particularly the giving of food. Food gifts. They were to give gifts of food to one another. Why? So everybody could participate. They didn't want anybody left out. Everybody was to celebrate the deliverance that they had received together, not individually, but together as a people. Now, when we think about food gifts, I think about sometimes you see ajumas on the street. They're out 
evangelizing, what do they give you? A lot of times it's a little thing of a hard tack. <laughs> I don't think that's a very good gift. Doesn't doesn't really make me want to come to their church. <laughs> Maybe a Reese's peanut butter cup would be a little better. <laughs> Something that represents a little bit better the glory of the gospel. <laughs> I don't know. Now we think about Korean culture. Maybe you wondered when you order something at most any coffee shop or restaurant, it's just you standing there by yourself, right? And you say, you know, hamburger, chuseo, or something. They say, how many? How many do you want, right? Now, if we're in a place like the U.S., everybody assumes there's just you. You want just one. But no, Korean culture, maybe it's a little bit better in this sense. But they often people are not buying for themselves, but they're buying to make sure everybody in the group is included. So they'll go get a whole bunch of coffees and bring them to the office together so everybody can share that's, that's the same idea here. And this is a kind of attitude that the church should have as well. Celebrating is not just individual thing, but it's the whole group all together. Celebrate this festival. And we know that Jesus gave us food as well. He gave us bread and the wine. As a sacrament, the Lord's Supper to celebrate, to celebrate the gospel, his death, his resurrection for the forgiveness of sins. So food is so important. And when we think about this gift here, it's especially mentioned the poor. Make sure that the gifts are given to the poor. And this is still something that's celebrated when Jews celebrate this festival. They make sure... They give gifts to the poor. So you don't want to neglect anyone. Now, in the book of 1 Corinthians, this was an issue in the church, that when they would celebrate the Lord's Supper, some people were being left out, especially the poorer people. So the apostle Paul, he had some harsh words for them. 1 Corinthians 11, he says... In eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry. Another gets drunk. What? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. So we always need to be aware that we're including everyone, not neglecting, especially the poor amongst us. And sometimes when we go out together and do some fellowship, maybe we do some things, go to some restaurant, for example, that might be a little bit expensive. We got to be aware that not everybody can afford that. So we need to take special care of that, take care of the people or a little less fortunate financially than us. So we're to feast, 
Second point here is we are to celebrate as an opportunity to remember. Remember what has been done for us. Look at verse 23. It says, So the Jews accepted what they had started to do and what Mordecai had written to them. For Haman the Agagite, the son of Hamadatha, the enemy of all the Jews, had plotted against the Jews to destroy them and had cast poor, that is, cast lots, to crush and to destroy them. But when it came before the king, he gave orders in writing that his evil plan that he had devised against the Jews should return on his own head, and that he and his sons should be hanged on the gallows. Therefore they called these days Purim, after the term Pur. Therefore, because of all that was written in this letter, and of what they had faced in this matter, and of what had happened to them, the Jews firmly obligated themselves and their offspring, and all who joined them, that without fail they would keep these two days according to what was written, and at the time appointed every year, that these days should be remembered and kept throughout every generation in every clan, province, and city, and that these days of Purim should never fall into disuse among the Jews, nor should the commemoration of these days cease among their descendants. So this feast is called Purim, the Feast of Purim. And of course, it commemorated their deliverance from this bad guy, from Haman. What did Haman do? Why is it called Purim? Because he cast lots. Casting lots. What is that? I think you can think of the Korean board game that people like to play on solo. It's the Yut Nori, right? They have little sticks little sticks that you can throw out in order to see where you should go. It's the same basic idea. This is what Haman was doing. Throwing out, it's kind of like throwing dice, but Haman probably had something like the sticks. So he'd throw it out, and then he decided, decided for him, because he's superstitious, when his plan should go forth to destroy the Jews. And it happened that it came to be the 12th month. So they had lots of time in order to prepare what to do. So isn't it interesting, this man, Haman, using his superstitious means. And yet, God was sovereign. He was sovereign over it. And we think about this festival Purim, in a sense, it was secular. In a sense, it was a secular holiday. Because when we look here in the book of Esther, it doesn't say anything about God at all. Did you notice that in this book? And with this holiday, it doesn't say anything about worship. It doesn't tell them how they should worship differently at all. So in a sense, this is a secular, this was a secular holiday, secular celebration. Now the Puritan, Matthew Henry, in his commentary, 
has some interesting comments on this. He says, Mordecai wrote at Shushan the palace where policy reigned more than piety. And he wrote according to the genius of the place. Even those that have the root of the matter in them are apt to lose the savor of religion and let their leaf wither when they converse wholly with those that have little religion. So that's, that's interesting. He's, he's saying that Mordecai, because he lived amongst the pagans, because he was at working there in the palace and not surrounded with faithful Jews, he's saying this, this is one of the reasons that Mordecai was not speaking about God here. I guess it's, a, it's an interesting theory. But he goes on, he says, And yet learn from Mordecai that men may be truly devout, though they do not abound in the shows and expressions of devotion. And therefore, we must not judge nor despise our brethren. So even though Purim was, in a sense, a secular holiday, this festival still shows us and points to the providence of God very strongly. You see, Haman, even in his attempts to destroy, destroy the people of God, God was sovereign over it. That poor that he threw, the lots that he threw, they landed exactly like the Lord planned it. All of Haman's plot is part of God's plan overall. And we see this in that the festival is named after that lot, that poor. The im is actually the plural in Hebrew. That's why it's called pur im. So the Lord is sovereign over, even over these seemingly small things, seemingly unimportant small things, things that are considered matters of chance. The Lord is sovereign over it, part of his plan. And when we think about the cross, you realize that casting lots was actually talked about in the Gospels. You see those soldiers, those Roman soldiers that crucified Christ, they cast lots. They cast lots to see who would get Jesus' clothing. And the Bible tells us that this was a fulfillment of prophecy concerning the Messiah. John 19 Verse 23, it says, When the soldiers had crucified Jesus, they took his garments. They said to one another, Let us not tear it, but cast lots for it to see whose it shall be. This was to fulfill the scripture, which says, They divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. So even in the most wicked thing, it's ever been done, the crucifixion of Christ. The Lord planned it. It was according to 
his sovereign plan, even these little details. And so, as prophesied in Psalm 22, and it came to pass, just as the Bible said. So, to commemorate the deliverance of the celebration, it was also a means of passing down the truth through every generation. That is stressed in this passage. They want to continue to do this festival so that every generation would know what happens, would know of the deliverance they had received. Now think about your childhood. What do you remember the most from your childhood? If you're like me, you remember especially the celebrations. Celebrations stick out in your memories. What happened? And so I think the celebrations are very important. Very important for passing down the faith to children. Some of the best memories we have, what shapes us, are celebrations we've had. So even though we're not called to celebrate this festival of Purim, we're still, we have a responsibility to celebrate, to pass down the gospel with celebration to the next generation, to every generation. You see, the celebration of deliverance, it says here, is never to fall in disuse. It's never to fall out of our memories among God's people. It's something that has to continue on forever. And we look forward to when Christ returns. You know what we're going to be doing? We're going to be celebrating continually. Celebrating and even looking back to what Christ accomplished for us on the cross. His death and his resurrection. We will continually and forever praise God for it and remember, remember it. So the celebration is important for remembering. And this brings us to our last point. Celebration gives the church an opportunity for obedience. Look at verse 29. It says, Then Queen Esther, the daughter of Abihel, and Mordecai the Jew, gave full written authority, confirming this second letter about Purim. Letters were sent to all the Jews, to the 127 provinces of the kingdom of Ahasuerus, in words of peace and truth, that these days of Purim should be observed at their appointed seasons, as Mordecai the Jew and Queen Esther obligated them, and as they had obligated themselves and their offspring, with regard to their fasts and their lamenting. The command of Esther confirmed these practices of Purim, and it was recorded in writing. So this duty, this duty to celebrate, was given to them, it says, by the full written authority of Mordecai and Esther, the queen. So in other words, it was not optional. Both sides had obligated, both the leaders and the people had obligated themselves to continue to celebrate 
this festival. <clears throat> now, even though we don't have to celebrate Purim, likewise, we have a duty. We have a duty to celebrate our deliverance from our enemies. Now, when you think about an obligation, a duty to celebrate, to have fun, personally, I, I thought about Hueshigs, Korean Hueshigs. People are forced to go out and have fun with their bosses. <laughs> People tend to hate that. It's not a popular practice. A lot of people really hate that. Be forced against your will to go out, hang out with your boss, and maybe they celebrate in some sinful ways as well. So it's very difficult for Christians, Korean Christians especially. Now, when we think about this duty to celebrate that we have, I don't think it's like that at all. <laughs> it's not like the Weishi, or it'd be forced to do things that we don't want to do. Why is that? It's because when you believe in Christ, you're given the Holy Spirit. And one of the things, the Holy Spirit works in many ways in the believer, but one of the things the Holy Spirit does is make us want to celebrate, to make us thankful, and want to rejoice and celebrate what God has done for us and want to worship God. So it's not at all like the Hueshid, even though it is a duty in a sense. Now sometimes we don't always, we don't always feel like waking up and, and pulling ourselves into church every, every time, do we? So when that happens to you, I'd urge you, trust in God, trust in Christ, that he will give you the desire. He'll give you the desire to celebrate. In fact, he's producing in you, if you're a believer, day by day, slowly, he's given us more and more of the joy of the Lord, more and more gladness. The gladness should be growing in us. It doesn't all come at once. It's a process. But we can look forward to the day when our joy and our celebration will be perfect and complete when Christ returns. 1 Corinthians 5.8, it says, Let us celebrate. Let us celebrate the festival, not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. Now here in Esther, it says that these words written by Queen and Mordecai calls them the words of peace and truth. What's it talking about there? Actually, the different Jewish communities were celebrating in different ways. They were celebrating this festival in different ways, so there, there wasn't peace among them and so this, these letters that were sent out, one of their purposes was to bring uniformity, unity and peace between the people. So that's another thing, the true biblical celebration 
of the gospel and worship should bring about peace, but peace that is centered on the words of truth. Now, if you're a foreigner living in Korea, you probably experienced how holidays are different here. Maybe you missed the way holidays are celebrated back in your home country. And maybe when there's a holiday in Korea, it doesn't quite feel like a real holiday and you kind of ignore it. (laughs) Well, that's not the way it's supposed to be in the church. You see, sometimes we, we have that same feeling when we visit other churches. One church will be doing things very differently than another church. There are lots of varied practices. And this was kind of the problem that was going on here. And I think a lot of that is caused when the churches stray from the word. And they're adding things or subtracting things from what they're supposed to do. Worshiping according to their own desires and preferences. Celebrating as they see fit rather than God. And so that's why we, as the people of God, we need to stick to the word in our celebration. We have to celebrate according to God's word. And that's why it calls it here the words of peace and truth. So further, there's a duty, it says here, to celebrate. Not all the time. Now, if they had the Feast of Purim 12 months a year, that wouldn't have been correct. No, they're to celebrate when? At their appointed times, their appointed seasons. And it talks here also about the duty to lament. It's actually saying that both of these were important. Previously, they had fasted when they were in their sorrow, when they thought they were going to be destroyed, when they were looking for help. And this is still the way that the Jews celebrate this festival of Purim. At the beginning, they have days of fasting, sorrow. And then it's followed up by days of gladness and celebration. You know, the book of Ecclesiastes talks about this same principle. It says, for everything there's a season and a time for every matter under heaven. A time to weep and a time to laugh. A time to mourn and a time to dance. You know, we we live in a world that's not yet perfect, still full of sin and the curse. We call it the already not yet because Christ has come. Christ's kingdom has begun. He has been raised. And yet, it's not yet consummated. And that's why we have to acknowledge both elements of reality, the already and the not yet, both lament and celebration is what characterizes the church until Christ returns. And we see this in the Bible, especially in the Psalms, the reality of both lament and celebration. So if we lament when celebration is appropriate, or vice versa, when we, if we celebrate, when lament is appropriate, 
there's a problem. I remember I went to a funeral. It's been a few years back now, but I went to a funeral of a young man who committed suicide, a classmate of mine in seminary. So it was a sad occasion, but I was kind of shocked how they, what they did at the, at the funeral. They sang many, all the songs they sang were very upbeat, you might call happy, clappy praise courses, so to speak. And I thought, that doesn't feel appropriate to the occasion. This is something sorrowful. And likewise, if I was to go to a wedding wearing all black and with a frown on my face, that would not be appropriate. Now, churches like ours, where we're not a charismatic church, right? We're not known for showing our emotions in great dramatic ways. Because that, that can lead to emotionalism that's void of true substance. But the Bible does call us to respond to the gospel with true gladness, true gladness of heart. So to fail to celebrate the deliverance we have in Christ is indeed sinful. You see, the Bible doesn't call us to be Stoics, to have Stoic indifference. Rather, we are to acknowledge the reality in this world. You know that when Jesus, when he came to this world, he talked about the, the way that that generation responded to him, not only to him, but to John the Baptist. You know, John the Baptist, he came and he was the last Old Testament prophet and he was calling for repentance. John the Baptist, he, didn't, he wasn't known for, his ministry wasn't characterized by celebration. It was, celeb, it was characterized by sadness because he was, his, his main word was repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. But then Jesus came, and Jesus, in kind of distinction from John the Baptist, Jesus came eating and drinking. But what was the response? What was the response of the world to them both? Jesus talked about it. In Matthew 11, he said, We played the flute for you, and you did not dance. We sang a dirge, and you did not mourn. For John came neither eating nor drinking, and they said, He has a demon. The Son of Man came eating and drinking, and they say, Look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. So this passage shows us that one of the things that characterize a spiritually dead heart is that it does not react, does not, does not mourn which should be mourned, and it does not take joy and rejoice in what should be rejoiced in, chiefly 
Christ and his deliverance of us. So church, as we've seen, the people of God are to be a people of celebration. It's to define us. We are to feast or to remember how we've been delivered. And it's even a duty for us. So I want to ask you today, have you joined the celebration? Now, if you haven't, I urge you today to believe. Believe in Christ. Trust in Him. You see, He is the only one who can deliver us from our enemy. He can deliver us from Satan and sin and from death itself. He's the only one. And He brings joy and gladness out of your sadness. He brings resurrection life. That's what's offered to you in the gospel. Believe. Believe in Christ. Now, if you're a believer, let me ask you, are you celebrating? Are you celebrating? Satan wants you to forget. Satan doesn't want you to take joy in your salvation. He wants you to despair. Are you actively remembering your deliverance in Christ, his death and resurrection? Especially, we don't have Purim, but we have the Lord's Day every week. It's a day especially set aside to celebrate the deliverance that we have. So are you making use of that day? Or do you think you have something better to do? Are you joining together to feast? Feast on God's word and feast on the sacraments. Celebrate. God gives it to us freely to feed us so we can feast upon it. But oftentimes we starve ourselves. So finally, are you celebrating as the Bible instructs you to? Are you adding to it or subtracting from it? So in closing, hear these words of Christ from the Beatitudes. Now, in our worship before, we read the first one. But if you go down further, here's what it says. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. Would you join me in prayer? Our Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you, Lord, that we indeed have something to celebrate today. Father, we thank you that we have been delivered forever, from our enemies, from Satan, from our sin, from death itself, because of what Christ has done for us. Father, we pray that this church would be characterized by true joy, 
gladness and celebration for what you have done for us. We pray this and we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.